So a few weeks ago, um, when we started this study of 1 Timothy, one of the things that we have talked about is answering the question, what is the church? And specifically, we discussed that in chapter 3 as we looked at verses 14 through 16. Two of the descriptions we gave to the church is that, first of all, the church is a people of transformation. A people of transformation. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, I'm writing to you, so in case I can't come in person, I'm writing to you so that you may know how one ought to behave. So we know that following Jesus is, means not only that we have been saved from something, saved from hell, saved from the eternal separation from God that our sin deserves, but that we have also been saved to something. We've been saved to a life, lived to the glory of of God. As a child of God, you get to represent God on earth. And Jesus was the fullness of that example. We know that Scripture says Jesus was the exact representation of the Father, meaning as we study the four Gospels, as we examine the life of Jesus, what we are looking at really is, is God in the flesh, right? Jesus was the God-man. And the church is a people of transformation, a people of change. We grow in, in what it is to live like Jesus, as one who represents God. We also noted that the church is a family. Paul goes on to say, not only I'm writing to you that one, that one would know how they ought to behave, but specifically behave in the household of God. This imagery of a family, I can't emphasize enough how God uses the imagery of a family to describe his people. Father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, right? This image is very powerful. Representing a family united in Christ Jesus, a spiritual family with a true relational bond in Jesus. That's what joins us together as a local church. This is the context in which we live out many of the things that Jesus called, to, called us to. In fact, I would say there are several commands of God that we can't fulfill unless you are actively engaged in the household of God. So let me ask you a question as we journey into this today. What, what kind of words would you use to describe a healthy, I'll say, earthly family? Right? There's many different family contexts within our church body. We know that we have single parents. We have you know, those who have been adopted. So let's, let's instead of just biological, let's say earthly family. What, what kind of words would you use to describe what is a healthy, earthly family? And when I say healthy, I'm not meaning you know, no coughs or fevers and talking about how we treat one another, how a family should function together. Young parents, what are some of the things you're trying to foster within your home? Empty nesters, what are some of the things as you think back that you're thankful that you focused on? And because I'm almost an empty nester, I'm thinking to myself, too, boy, I wish there were some things maybe we would have focused on a little more, right? What, what are some of those things you would say should describe a healthy earthly family? Perhaps a family exercise or parent exercise you could do in your home, for those of you that have children in your home still, is to ask the question, what kind of family do you want to be? Ask your children that. You could bring some excitement into it if you want and have them think of their favorite dessert and think of ingredients, right? What kind of ingredients do you want to be part of our family? And they will more likely, if they are serious about it, well, I want to be, you know, a happy family, 
maybe a kindness, those kind of things. Throughout the years, I've never heard a child say, I want us to be a mean family or a family that hates each other or doesn't talk to each other. Right? And the nice thing about this little exercise of the family is when they give you a response like kindness or happiness, then when they're the instigator of the opposite, right? they're the ones causing issue, then you can look at them and say, didn't you say you want us to be a happy family? Right? What are you putting into that? Now, one thing I think we all agree on is this, is that a healthy family is one who cares for each other. Now, the word care is a somewhat general term. I get that, right? So we can think about many facets of caring for each other, but it's a family that looks out for each other, a family that helps each other, that there's a sense of genuine love that is expressed among them. And so today we're going to talk about more deeply our spiritual family, the church. A healthy church family is marked by a deep and sincere care for one another just like a healthy earthly family is. Our context today causes us to look kind of with a wide lens at the big picture and then really zooms in on the very specific part of the family and then goes wide again. So that's the pattern we'll follow. So we can track with this together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the, the wide lens, if you will. Paul says to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, But encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. Everyone say the word encourage, Encourage. right? This is the key verb here. We could implement it throughout these two verses. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Encourage younger men as brothers. Encourage older women as mothers. Encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. Encouragement. The overall tone of a ministry set by its leaders, its pastors and elders, is to be one of encouragement, not rebuke, Paul says. Encourage, the Greek word parakaleo, uh, which means to urge or to implore, to exhort, meaning there's this movement or growth, right? Pursuit of holding to and living out the truth. Encourage them in that. You see, Jesus, the Bible tells us, was full of grace and full of truth. As that exact representation of God, what did he model for us? The fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. And so a ministry of encouragement is patient with each other, not accepting sin, but in understanding we all battle temptation, we all give in at times. So encouragement to embrace the forgiveness of Christ, to repent of that sin, to turn from it, and to press on in following Jesus. Vice versa, a ministry of rebuke is like looking for sin around every corner. A ministry of rebuke produces a spirit of law and of shame and of guilt. That's not what we're encouraged. We're encouraged to live as a a family who encourages one another, who builds one another up in Christ. Galatians 6.1, I love this verse. Perhaps you've heard me reference it before. I tend to draw back to it uh, time and time again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. The spirit of gentleness, of encouragement, 
A healthy spiritual family is where the purity of the gospel is upheld, where the righteousness of Christ is pursued, where the restoration is sought through gentleness, that that is what is practiced and the glory of God is esteemed above all else. So verses 1 and 2 kind of give us this wide view lens of how we are to function together, the image of a family, brothers, sisters, mother, father, right, that that we treat one another in such a way. Now, Paul really narrows the focus in verse 3. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. The word honor, tomao, doesn't mean tomato, all right? Tomao in the Greek means to show respect, to show appreciation, promoting others before yourself. It's a word that demonstrates value, at times in a very real sense, by providing even aid or financial assistance when necessary. You help someone because you respect them and they are valuable to you as a brother, as a sister, as a mother, as a father in Christ. The word honor, the theme of honor, is not anything new to this particular text, right? It's, we see it throughout the scriptures. You might remember one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother, right? The theme of honor is all throughout the word. Jesus emphasized it in Matthew chapter 15 when he was confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, right? They were griping about the disciples not washing their hands before they eat, now, kids in the room, let me just say, that's a good thing to wash your hands right before you eat. So parents, I'm with you, all right? I'm supporting you. But they were griping about this because it was a tradition that they had. It was something that they, they made into a law. And so they began to gripe that the disciples didn't do that. And Jesus catches them in, her, in their hypocrisy, saying, you, you lift high this tradition of man, but you, you've disobeyed the command of God by not honoring your father and mother. And he goes into how they were dishonoring to them. And so it's there in Jesus' ministry. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, and Paul emphasizes uh, the, the family relationships, honoring your father and mother. So it's nothing new. And, and in fact, this theme of honor in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, a very general way to, to capture all of us as, as a spiritual family, he says this, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I just love that. I mean, not to introduce a competitive spirit uh, among the body of Christ, right? But to, to outdo one another in showing honor? Are we the first to jump to that? Are we the ones that, that are, you know, take initiative in how we can honor one another, show value? In general, we are to show honor to each other as the body of Christ. So now Paul gets specific. He says, honor widows. What's a widow? We know this. A widow is one, a woman whose husband has died. That's a widow. Most often it seems we hear of the church's responsibility toward widows from James chapter 1, verse 27, as kind of a blanket, full responsibility of the church. James says in James 1:27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James says specifically, like, man, this is good religion. This is good action in a sense, right? This is a good outflow or overflow of your relationship with Christ to to heed the needs of orphans and widows. 
Now, undoubtedly, we see from the Scripture that God has a heart for widows and orphans. Throughout Scripture, widows are included with members of society that we are to look out for and care for. The poor, the fatherless, right? the orphans, the sojourners, meaning those visitors passing through the land, these were to be treated with honor and compassion. Even given harvest, given provision at harvest time and offered protection. Listen to these strong words from God found in Exodus chapter 22. It says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Gives us a pretty good glimpse into the heart of God, doesn't it? How much he cares for those who cannot care for themselves. Now, for the Jews, God's instituted a law to protect widows. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6, you can read it specifically, but it was called, the, it was called leveret marriage. It has nothing to do with the Levites, who were the priests of the people of God. The word levir in Latin meaning a husband's brother. So leveret marriage literally means marriage with a brother-in-law. And in ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common uh, for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to provide an heir for the deceased. A widow would marry a brother-in-law, and the first son born was considered the legal descendant of her deceased husband. So in ancient Israel, the passing of the family name and the inheritance within a tribe were vitally important. We read of this in the book of Numbers and 1 Kings and so on. So that's, that's why this was instituted, so that, that the family name could be preserved. That's how serious God took this. It also shows the heart of God for widows to be cared for. We see two clear examples of this, at least in the scriptures. One found in Genesis chapter 38, Tamar and Onan and Onan is not necessarily a great example in this, uh, uh, in this endeavor, but uh, nonetheless, you can read of it there in Genesis 38 if you care to. Ruth and Boaz, perhaps the most familiar, uh, Ruth seeking that kinsman redeemer and found that in Boaz. So this is a backdrop, if you will, to describe for us God has a heart for those who can't care for themselves, the orphans and widows and so on throughout the scripture. So let's look further at what Paul says. He further defines widow as honor widows who are truly widows. Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us to our own imagination as to what a, who is truly a widow, right? He goes on to say in verse 4, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This is reflective of that Exodus 22 passage, right? When the widow who, who cries out to God, right? If they go uncared for, God has the consequence. So here, this widow, one who is truly a widow, left all alone, 
and one who has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers nights and days. So one thing we learn from these verses right here seems to be just a truth we can put forward is that a widow with children and, gr- and grandchildren is to be cared for by them. Verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness. This is an expression of godliness, what represents God, right? It is pleasing to him, Paul says, when children and grandchildren care for their family in this way. This is to be the first step of caring for family. Now, I find it interesting what Paul says, let them first learn to show godliness, this idea of learning, what does it mean? Well, it means you're, you're engaging in something that you don't yet know, right? You're kind of in this process of understanding and, and, and learning. I experienced this personally uh, about five years ago when my father passed away, leaving my mom a widow at the age of, uh, what was it, 68 or something, or 70, um, and so my, three, or my two older brothers and I, the three of us, we had to learn what it meant to care for her, to look after her. Um, at first, she was able to live on her own in their apartment, and then she had some health issues that prevented that. We learned, like, hey, what was going to be best is that somebody cared for her. And so Kelly and I, as well as my brother, we considered, like, where... Should she go? What should we do? She came to live with us for 15 months, and then my brother had actually taken on the responsibility. My oldest brother, when they were remodeling a house, they built actually a a room for her that unfortunately she never was able to go to because she passed away before that move took place. But for us, it was this journey of learning, like, how do we care for her well? Did it mean, actually, that she had to live with one of us? Could we care for her well by making sure she was provided for in some other situation? Learning. I'll guarantee you this, the whole process for me was a challenge to my selfishness. Right? It's part of the refining process of growing in Christ. Kelly's experience was a bit different. On her Crager side of the family, her grandma Crager became a widow in her early 50s and for the next 30 years or so uh, was cared for by her dad, Tim, who you saw uh, a couple weeks ago, Tim and Ginny. And I didn't know life of the Craigers without Grandma Crager being present, either living in their home with them or at least living near them where Tim could look after her. In fact, she even moved to the Dominican Republic with them when they moved there. So learning, every situation, every circumstance is going to have its uniqueness. And part of the journey and caring for those whom we love, who are part of our earthly or biological family, God says, yes, learn this so that you can make some return, are the words here. Make some return. This is the godly pursuit as well as the pursuit full of gratitude, right? It takes thought, time, and attention It's gratitude, like you cared for me when I was young. I will learn to care for you when you are older. Now, in the first century and still in some parts of the world, your family was your only means of care, right? In this context here that we're reading about in the New Testament, in Ephesus, the city, we have this kind of collision of Jewish and Greco-Roman worlds. The Jewish uh, 
culture was much more family-oriented. The, the Roman culture was not. For a Jew, they understood that their responsibility to care for aging parents or a widow in this particular case was a way of honoring your father and mother. Under Roman law, a father could discard a newborn child. The child was not regarded as a person and member of the household until the father agreed to raise and support the child. And so for them, caring for an aging parent or a widow, perhaps, a child of Rome saw caring for them as a thankfulness, although kind of an obligated appreciation. That was their expression. So we have these, this collision of a culture, a Jewish culture, which our country being founded on uh, Judeo-Christian roots, certainly we see like every life has a value, right? Uh, when in the Rome, when, when those fathers, if they chose to discard the child, they would take them out and just simply put them on the trash heap. The Christians of the day became known for what were really the early steps of adoption by going out and taking children off of the trash heap and bringing them into their family. So we see the, the very different cultural understandings of, of the disregard for the value of life simply grounded in, our, in the fact that we are image bearers of God. Every person has value because you bear the image of God. The Jews understood. So you can imagine the church in Ephesus. There were these differences of, uh, of cultural understanding colliding together and Paul's giving instruction to them of saying, yes, every life has value from conception to grave. So caring for aging parents, widows specifically, has many different dynamics, questions that we have to wrestle with. Technology has changed the way we consider some things as well, hasn't it? It's easier to keep in touch with them. It's easier to have access to doctors or bank accounts or things like that in the care of one who is in our family. Many different dynamics. So Paul gives clarity in verse 5 as we read it. A true widow is one left all alone. When there is no family to care, right? when there are no children or grandchildren in the picture, the church steps in. And we realize the dynamic that it may be that a widow, a particular woman, has children or grandchildren, but in some cases, because there's not the value or appreciation for that person, that the children or grandchildren don't step in and engage. So, yes, in those instances, too, the church is to care for those widows. She who is truly a widow is one who is left all alone. And just as we kind of get our heads wrapped around this a little bit as to what is a true widow, verse 6, Paul introduces another element. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But she who is self-indulgent, this is a different widow, a widow different than the one who finds themselves alone, yet sets her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. This particular widow is self-indulgent, living life for self. And Paul says she's dead even while she lives, right? There's a sense of 
spiritual death here because she's living for her own pleasures rather than living for Christ. He says, command these things to her as well. We saw this phrase, command these things, also in chapter 4, verse 11. Paul's simply saying, encourage widows in this situation, encourage the families with this dynamic to engage in this way with one another, to train yourself for godliness. So Paul brings a bit of a discrepancy in what is truly a widow versus other widows. In verse 8, he continues, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, some pretty bold words, right? We may not like the brash way Paul comes across sometimes, but one thing for sure is I think we all appreciate his clarity. Right? He's a kind of say-it-like-it-is kind of guy, and God used that to communicate his truth. Remember, God used some 40 different authors to write the scriptures, and we believe each of those authors was inspired, carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit to communicate to us exactly what God wanted, working with and, and, and in the midst of their own personality and the way that they were. And so Paul's a pretty straightforward kind of guy, and he's saying, listen, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. Why? Because what is, what is of the faith, what is of Christ, is one who has received the forgiveness and grace of God and is willing to place that, that love upon others as well. It's as if they've denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, note the seriousness of the matter. Paul equates one's willingness and action in caring for their earthly family really to the sincerity of their faith. As if he's saying, listen, if you have received the forgiveness and grace of God in your life and that kindness of God towards you, then how can you not extend that to those that God has placed right in your life by that family bond? It was true even among the unbelievers of the day, that one was responsible to support aging parents. That was, you know, the Romans understood that in this context, right? The, the Gentiles, those without Christ, they, they understood the need for that. So he's saying to them, listen, if you, even as, as believers, right, as Christ followers, if you choose not to or you ignore this need that is present in your family, it's as if you're like them or even worse than them because they get it. So we might consider today that an unwillingness to care for your family means your faith in Christ is called into question. Or at least for you to reconsider the power of the gospel in your life, the grace and mercy, the kindness that you have been shown in Jesus is the motivation of your willingness to show that kindness to others. This is why the breakdown of the family unit and culture is such a big deal, right? Even more so in the church. When a family doesn't function together as how God designed it to function because of sin and the brokenness, it's hard. And listen, as I walk through this today, I am, and just sat in my office for a bit this week and just contemplated, man, I know, like... This is, this is a big, because in your family, I, I get, like, the family dynamics within a group like this, 
in all the scenarios, and I know like this is a, a monologue, not a dialogue, so feel free to email me and all that kind of stuff if you, if you have questions. But, but I know running through your mind right now is probably like, well, what ifs and, and what abouts and all of those things. I get it. We simply can't speak to every scenario today. What we can do is draw together into what the Scripture calls us to and entrust the Spirit of God to lead you and to guide you in your life as to how this is to be applied in your situation. And so what I am compelled to do at this moment, instead of trying to endeavor to speak to all the various things that are in our family context, I just want to pray for us. I want to pause and I just want to pray and ask the Spirit of God to give us wisdom and give us a heart of love, to give us perseverance. For some of you that are in hard situations, man, as I talk with some of you, it's just, ah, you're in it in a big way. Some of you are trying to figure it out. You're trying to learn what it means to live in this way. So I just want to pray for you. Let's pause and do that. Father, I just come before you. All of us lift our hearts to you. Lord, we, first of all, acknowledge the value of life, every life, from conception to grave. We are created in your image. And Father, I pray that as we walk through life and our various earthly family dynamics, Lord, we understand your call to love one another well. And Lord, I know that in different ways, sometimes that's very difficult to figure out what that looks like. We have some family who don't share our faith. What does that mean? And we have brokenness and sin. And Lord, just there's so many different dynamics. I pray that you would give to us wisdom. And above all else, Lord, give to us a heart of love for our family that you have given to us. Lord, it's not by chance that we have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Lord, you, you have given to you, put us in our family. You designed it. Help us to love them as you have loved us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So a bit more on a true widow, verse 9. Let a widow, Paul says, be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Boy, that's a great list, isn't it? What caught my attention first in this verse was, let a widow be enrolled. The word does entail a literal signing up. It's, it's roots perhaps in Acts chapter 6 when the concern was brought to the apostles that, hey, some of the Hellenist or, or Greek-speaking uh, Jewish widows are not being cared for properly. And so seven were chosen to make sure that that need got met, right? They were somehow given charge over a certain one. There was, there was a way of knowing who was to be cared for in such a way. Some believe this was a type of a special order, if you will, of widows committed to prayer or some other ministry of the church, and perhaps, right, that enrolling entails that. But I don't think we need to make more of this than the fact that there was certain criteria, 
and that they had a way of keeping track. It lends itself to a bit of reasoning as to why we have formal membership here at the church, why we ask you to, hey, you know, we invite you into this context of going through a process of becoming a member at Crossroads. Why is that? So we get to know a bit of your story. There may be some of you who are here who are widows that we don't know your story because we've never had the chance to hear your story, to have that conversation. So let a widow be enrolled. Let there be some way of of keeping track. And he, he says here specifically, those who are 60 years of age or older, now, this probably wasn't a hard and fast thing. If a widow was 59 and had no one to care for her, I'm thinking they probably let her enroll, right? But in the time, at the age of 60 was, was the sign of, of old age beginning. A widow of this age was most likely beyond remarriage and not able to provide for herself through work. And so we couple these two things together. Verse 5, when he says, A true widow is one left all alone. Verse 9, we might conclude that a true widow is not able to provide for herself, right? Because of her age, work opportunities would be less, physical capabilities would be less, and so on. Furthermore, a true widow is proven faithful to her husband, her family, and her church. So these three things, one who is left all alone, a widow not able to provide for herself, and not of age to remarriage, most likely. And a true widow has proven faithful to her husband, her family, and her church. The church is not called to care for all the widows of society. They are to care for the widows within the church family who meet this criteria. So the church, without question, is to care for widows in this position. Now, A new description Paul brings in in verse 11. We'll walk through these last few verses here somewhat quickly. But he says, refuse to enroll younger widows. So we've talked about truly widows, those who are of an age of 60 or above. So younger widows, we would conclude those who are younger than 60. Paul doesn't mention here whether these younger widows have children or not children. Uh, There's a whole range of age right within that. Maybe some of these younger widows... um, A husband dies very young and they've not yet had children, maybe some not able to have children, and so on. Paul's not clear here. He just calls them younger widows. Um, He says to refuse to enroll them. Why is that? Well, he goes on in verse 13, refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incurred condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So Paul gives a pretty clear description. There's something going on here, right, within the church in Ephesus where he's drawing into this in a very clear way. These younger widows, he seems to identify, were those young and rebellious against their faith, that they had been drawn into the passions and desires of their heart drawing them away from Christ, like those who had made a shipwreck of their faith, we've seen earlier, those who departed from the faith, as we saw previously. Perhaps these are widows of some means, having money and wealth where they didn't have to provide for themselves, and they just found themselves doing whatever their heart's desire was, and it seems not much of it was good. 
Perhaps widows who were taking advantage of the church's provision. These were, these were widows that maybe were enrolled. And, and Paul's saying, listen, we need to examine this and make sure that they're not taking advantage of what the church is providing. The bottom line, some were not using their time wisely in their new situation in life. There was a significant shift in life. And we know that those kind of shifts can cause someone to walk away from their faith. Let me just say this for a moment to those of you that are widows, widowers, even in the room. When you lose a spouse, that's a hard situation. That's not an easy thing. Paul's not bypassing all, he's acknowledging like it's hard. And there's an adjustment, especially when you're of an older age and have lived many years of life with this spouse, with a husband. Or even a wife. He says these younger ones in their situation, they desire to marry. But in the context of these verses, it seems to indicate they marry outside of Christ. Like they're, they're, they follow the passions of their heart. They, they, you know, they get this new opportunity, if you will, in life. And they, they begin to follow the desires of their heart, which leads them away from Christ. So this marriage is, is out of Christ, it seems. Roman law did require remarriage in order to keep an inheritance, and so maybe there was this sense of obligation to do that, and you know, and you had to get married. So some of them, like, well, if I want to keep my money or keep my family inheritance, I have to do this. Or they were they were marrying someone who was not a believer, not a Christ follower, and so all kinds of things probably happening within the midst of this. Multiple reasons motivated by various sinful passions and desires of the heart. And as we grapple with that, we do kind of an about face in verse 11. We go from refusing those who want to marry to Paul now saying, have younger widows marry in verse 14. He says, so I would have younger widows marry. I thought you just said not to have, like they got married out of their self. Well, this is a different younger widow. Just like he had different older widow. This is a different younger widow. Have younger widows marry, build children, manage their households, give, give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already Straight after Satan. They were remarrying in Christ. Christ, first and foremost, finding a husband that is united with them in that. Therefore, this is a good thing. So younger widows remarrying, the opportunity of that, much more likely. So back to the earthly family then in verse 16. Now we've we kind of zoomed in on... Widows, right? We looked big picture with loving one another, encouraging one another in Christ as brothers and sisters and so on. And then we zeroed in on the aspect of widows in particular. And now we zoom back out in verse 16. It says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Any believing woman having a heart, any believer, right, male or female, having a heart to care for those around them. And in this context, specifically of widows, it's saying the family first. 
Let the church not be burdened, right? That's not a, I don't like the word burdened in the translation there. It seems to have a negativity to it. That's not the sense. But as we all endeavor to love one another well, care for one another, it's, the church has a, a vital responsibility. In that. And by the way, when I say the church, it's not just church corporate-wise, meaning, yep, that's just what those leaders do, right? No, that means you sitting in the chair when you build relationship with someone in the body of Christ. You are the church. And when you build relationship with somebody in a community group or a Bible study or something of that nature and you know that they have a need, friend, listen, as a follower of Jesus, what is your responsibility? To try and help meet that need, right? And to walk them along in in their own growth in Christ as they deal with that need or whatever that change of life is here, the loss of a a spouse. And, And so we grow together in that. So the, the big picture is this, that the heart of a follower of Jesus is to care for those around them who are in need, right? As we zoom back out, what, what's the application point for all of us in this? You care for those around you in need. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan had, the Samaritan had nothing to do with the Jewish man that had been beaten, left on the side of the road, and yet he was the one who cared for him. That's godliness. That's what represents God well in your life. So are you taking care of your family? The family that God has given to you. Are we as a church caring for those that God has brought to us as a spiritual family? I want to finish by just speaking to widows directly for a moment. And on Tuesday when our pastors got together and just kind of talking through the text and, and thinking through the various aspects of it, we began to recount a little bit of the widows within our body, and we have many. And as we began to kind of walk through each scenario, uh, as much as we knew who had family caring for them, who didn't, and all that kind of stuff, and, and we just want to give you opportunity to speak into that. So today, if you're a widow in particular, would you fill out one of those connection cards and just write one of three things on that card and say something like, the church is taking care of me. Maybe it's your community group. Maybe it's a Bible study group. Maybe it's just friends you've made. But if you feel cared for and and you're in that boat, would you just say, the church is caring for me? Maybe you would say, my family is taking care of me. You would, you would let us know and just make sure we're informed that, yes, you have children or grandchildren perhaps or someone within your family context who is, is looking after you and caring for you and, and therefore we can go, okay, the family is functioning as it should, right? But would you also maybe need to write this and say, boy, I feel alone. I'm not sure that I have anybody that's looking out for me or helping care for me. Because we as your church family want to make sure we know of that and that we respond well to that and help you as God has called us to. I want to pray for us and then um, I think we'll finish with the prayer uh, this time, Corey, okay? Um, With the time. So let me pray and just ask the Spirit of God to Guide us in this. Father, uh, we come to you um, Lord, this is a, a challenging topic in many ways. 
something that really, um, I know for many of us, has already been something we've had to process and for perhaps all of us at some point it will be a consideration. How to care for those that you have placed within our family, our earthly family. How to care for those you have placed within our church family. May we be followers of Jesus who looks up from our own interests and our own needs even and looks around and sees those around us who are hurting alone without someone to care. And may we lean into that. May we be willing even to use our own resources at times. May we be willing to give of our time just to love them. I thank you for those in our church family who are doing that. Those who are going and sitting and, and reading simply with some who are alone. May we represent you well by loving others well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.